0: Okay, what is the meaning of life? Forty-two. Well, we've got we've got one answer there. Um, That was the that was the question that a six-year-old boy um, asked Neil deGrasse Tyson. Anyone know who he is? Pretty well-known scientist, and he's the host of the new Cosmos program that's on TV we've we've seen a couple of those. Pretty smart guy, right? I mean, this guy who is a, kind of a physicist, astronomer, you know, you name it, like he's I mean, he's pondering the big things of the world all the time, right? Well here's what he said. He said I, I think people ask that question on the assumption that meaning is something. You can look for and then, oh, I found it, here's meaning, here's what it is. And it doesn't, uh, he went on and he said, "And, and it doesn't consider the possibility that maybe meaning in life is something that you create, that you manufacture for yourself and for others. When I think of meaning in life, I ask, have I learned something today that I didn't know yesterday, bringing me a little closer to knowing all that can be known in the universe? just a little closer, however far away all the knowledge sits. If I live a day and I don't know a little more, than, um, little more that day than the day before, I think I wasted that day. Really? I mean, we all want to find meaning in life, right? We all, all, all want to experience purpose, a sense of purpose, so we, to do something significant with our lives, and, and so does he. So does Neil deGrasse Tyson. But, you know, in a culture that glorifies self, it's no surprise to hear someone say that maybe meaning in life is something you create, that you manufacture for yourself and for others. But is that really where true meaning is found? The Bible actually reveals something different, doesn't it? In the entire story of God in the Bible reveals that our ultimate meaning our ultimate purpose is to give God glory really to give God glory if God is how he is revealed here in scripture the most ultimate being the creator of all that is the most important person if we can call him a person because he is he has a personality the most important person being, entity, however you want to describe Him, in the entire universe, all that has ever been and all that ever will be has come from Him. If God is God, then He needs to be given glory. And that's how the Bible reveals it to us. In one way this has been stated in the past is is this, the chief end, the ultimate purpose, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So make no mistake, uh, God will ultimately receive universal glory. Here's what Paul said in in Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the in in a The Apostle Paul's vision in the book of Revelation, this is what he says, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, God will ultimately receive universal glory. What about now? What about right now? You know, if the ultimate purpose for our lives and for this church is to glorify God, how are we going to do that? How are we going to go about giving God the glory that He deserves? Actually, Psalm 96 helps us with that. We're going to look at that together, and I believe that after we study this psalm today, we look at it this morning, that we will better understand how God receives universal glory through our witness, through our worship, and through our welcome. So let's read Psalm 96 together. It's, if you, if you uh, are looking for it in the Pew Bibles, it's page 499. Give you a chance to find that, and you can also follow along on the screen. So I will read aloud, and you follow with me, please. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the nations be glad, or excuse me, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this word, and Lord, I pray that Your Spirit will speak through us and speak through me. Lord, I don't want my voice to be overbearing of your word. Lord, I want your word and the message you have in this psalm to penetrate our hearts, to devastate us, Lord, this morning. God, that we will be transformed by it. We will be nourished by it. We will be encouraged by it. And yes, Lord, even convicted by it. Father, move now. Move now. I just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unlike many of the psalms, many of the psalms have a, an inscription and they note who wrote the psalm or what its purpose was for and, and we this one's missing. I, I looked at Psalm 96 a, a couple of weeks ago. I, I, um, I told the men in our preaching class that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study Psalm 96 while they're studying their particular passages and then um, we're going to look into it and we're going to look at who the author was, and who he was writing to, and we're going to look at all that background stuff, and I'm looking at Psalm 96 going, man, there's not a lot of help here. There's not a lot of help telling me when the psalm was written and why they would sing it. Why would they sing the psalm? Well, I did dig a little further, and I discovered that this psalm is almost verbatim right out of 1 Chronicles 16. 1 Chronicles 16 I'm sure you all have that memorized. You know exactly what's going on in the story of First Chronicles 16, right? Well, just in case, you need to be reminded. Um, 1 Chronicles 16 is telling the story of the ark coming into Jerusalem. David is king, and he's got his, his kind of his throne, and the, the capital city is being established there in Jerusalem. But the ark of the covenant that went before the people for many, many years up to that point... Um, is in this little village way off in Judea somewhere, in the the tribe of Judah. And he wants to bring it in to Jerusalem, and he wants to bring it into the, the tabernacle that is still set up there. They haven't built the temple yet. And so that's when the song appears for the first time. David shares the song, and he has the song leaders sing the song for the people and with the people, leading them in this singing as the ark is brought into Jerusalem, really for the very first time in the history of Israel. The purpose of the psalm, this is important, so if you're taking notes, I would I would I would clue in on this. But the purpose of this psalm is for God's people to acknowledge his universal glory. That he is king, that he is sovereign, he is over everything. But to acknowledge his universal glory and for them to witness to the world about His glory, to worship God with everything they are and they have, and to welcome His coming with joyful anticipation. Well, the rest of the message is basically going to explain all of that, and you have some blanks there to help you as we go. But the first thing I want to show you is, I want to I show you about witness. Witness in this psalm. See, this truth is important to remember. God receives universal glory as we bear witness to his salvation. As we bear witness to his salvation. That's what, that's what the people were singing about. And notice that it's all the people. See, all of us are privileged and responsible to bear witness. Um, it was Asaph, Asaph and his brothers who David appointed to sing the song to the Lord. And they sang it in the assembly, but they were the only ones intended to sing it. Um, I mean, look at the words. The words themselves invite us all to join in the singing. Look, he says, sing to the Lord. That's a command. So anyone who's hearing that psalm, sing to the Lord. That means you, 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 all of you sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. There you go. Just to make some emphasis, all the earth sing to the Lord. Everyone in it. Everything in it. Um tell of His salvation, declare His glory, bless His name. Those are all commands given to the worshipers that they all participate in this witness. You know, there were people in Israel who were skilled in music, right? I mean, just like today, we've got got people who are skilled in music, people who are skilled in singing, people who are skilled in in sharing with other people, uh, public speaking that's not... We don't all jump up and down at the opportunity to stand in front of people and, and speak, right? But there were people like that in Israel. They were gifted at proclaiming God's word. They were the prophets and they were the kings and the priests. Um, people who are gifted at sharing God's story with other people. And, you know, that's that's the way it is today. Um, and and just like, just between then and now, it's it's the same thing. There are were, there were people who go, well, I'm not really good at that, so I'm going to let others do that. I'll let I'll let somebody else who's really talented at it, like, for instance, witnessing or, quote-unquote, evangelism. We talk about that a lot. And then we get sweaty palms and we go, I can't do that. I can't talk to people about Jesus. But that's not what the psalm called us to do. (laughs) That's not what the psalm said. The psalm said, all of you all, witness. All of you all. Share, all of y'all, sing a new song. Whoever hears the psalm tells it. Now that's why I um, that's why Kevin's going to Kenya, isn't it? Kenya yeah, Kevin's not going to Kenya because he's like, "You know, I, 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 really, I love public speaking. It's like my thing. My thing is, I, I love to stand in front of people and tell them something, anything. It doesn't matter what it is. I'll, tell, I'll do that. That's not why Ke- Kevin is going. He's going because he recognizes that there's a call on our lives as believers. As, a f- as followers of Jesus, we follow Jesus, we do what he does. And he preached the good news. He shared with other people. <laughs> and so we, we get about doing that work, right? It's kind of scary, but that's what he's doing. But see, notice though how, how, how the psalmist though talks about the good news. What, what is this? I mean, it's one thing for us to recognize that, yes, we should be sharing the good news, but it's another thing to identify what it is. And look at how he describes it. He says they, he, he calls people to sing a new song. And this is significant. So before we just kind of roll over that and, and we start thinking, oh, well, that means we should only sing contemporary praise choruses in our, in our church, right? It's got, we have to have a new song, it's, Says right here, sing a new song. Never says sing an old song. The Bible never says sing an old song, right? I'm not gonna go, and I'm not arguing for old or new, okay? But before we go off on that, what was he really trying to get at? Well, see, a new song means recognizing a new act of salvation. It recognizing that God has done something new. God has done a new thing, he has rescued his people. He has saved us once again. Let's sing about it. Shall we? Let's sing about that. That's pretty awesome. I mean, Exodus 15. Exodus 15. Moses and Miriam sing a new song. They sing a song. They sing a song of thanksgiving and praise to God. Look what God has done. He's rescued us. The horse and the rider fell into the sea. Pharaoh's army drowned. God has rescued us. He's brought us out. We're going to sing about that. 1 Samuel 2. Hannah. Gives birth to little Samuel. She was barren. She prayed to God, God, give me a son. Give me a son. My rival has a son. I don't have a son. Give me a son. And God gives her a son. And what does she do? She she sings a song, a new song. Thank you, God. Thank you for giving me a son. Luke 1. We looked at Luke 1 last month in December. Well, two months ago now. And what did we see? We saw Mary singing a song. Because God was doing something new. God was doing a new salvation. God was doing something. Oh, lest we forget, there will be a time in Revelation 14 when the 144,000, that's symbolic of all of God's people chosen, singing a new song, a new song before the throne of God, singing, oh, didn't, we just, didn't I just read part of that a moment ago? Salvation belongs to our God. God is doing something new. So, a new song means God's doing something. God, God is doing something all of the time, all around us. We don't, it's not just an exercise to check the box to say, yes, we share testimonies on Sunday morning. You know, we should, we should share testimonies on Sunday morning so that we can develop fluency in sharing testimonies on Monday morning and Tuesday night, and Wednesday afternoon. Right? All the time. That's why we share, because God's doing something, and we have something to share, don't we? Look at, look at what, what, what the psalmist talks about God. Um, God's salvation, um, His glory, His marvelous works. He says, for great is the Lord. And look at, look at how great He is. God is more glorious than other gods. There are a lot of gods around us. You know, we don't live in a time that Israel lived in when they could just travel to another country and they could see physical representations of, you know, idols and, and they'd have those places of worship where... Or maybe we do have that. Oh, maybe we do. Ah, oh, shoot. Now I think about it. You know, maybe down in Phoenix... Today, there's idol worship going on. I, I don't know. I'm not. Hey, you know, it's the Super Bowl. We love it, and we're gonna we're gonna cheer, and we're gonna we're gonna get into it. And we enjoy it, and it's something that we should, I think, take joy in. It's it's a good thing. But how easy those things can become idols. How easy can those can easily those things become gods in our lives? So maybe we do have symbols. Maybe. Maybe the dollar is a symbol, you know. Maybe the, maybe the stock ticker at the bottom of the screen, maybe that's an idol. You know, maybe our homes, our temples, <laughs> our houses, we go, we're go, we making our, our house an idol. You know, it's our little temple, our place of worship, our sanctuary. I don't know. But God is more glorious than every single one of those things. That's the truth. For all of the gods of the peoples, he says, are worthless idols. They have zero value. Zero value. Nothing. See, our hearts, (laughs) John Calvin said this, our hearts are idol factories. I mean, we can make an idol, we can make a god out of anything. And we do it day after day. But God is the creator of all that there is. Look at what he says. The Lord made the heavens. He's the one we should be witnessing about. He's the one we should be talking about. So, here's a for instance. What are you known for talking about? You know, if if somebody were, if I were to ask your friends or family, say, describe so-and-so. What are the things that she is really into? What are the things that he really likes? What is, what is he all about? How would they describe, oh, like, yeah, like huge, you know, huge Seahawks fan or you know, really into this or loves cars or you know, makes a lot of money? I don't know. Nobody here really makes a lot of money, do we? I, not really. So no one's going to say that about us. But you know what I'm saying? What are the things that come out of our mouths Day after day after day. What are we known for? What do we give value to through our speech? God is awesome. Is it, is it okay to talk about God? It's okay to talk about God. Look, splendor and majesty are before him. Don't, those are not throwaway words. They mean something. They mean more than we can imagine. Uh, Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So you've all seen a beautiful sunset. You've all seen the ocean, probably. Hopefully, all of you have gotten over there and seen some ocean somewhere. You've, maybe you've seen the Grand Canyon. You've probably been over on the west side. You've seen Mount Rainier in all of its glory, and we talk about it that way, right? We have seen amazing things in this world. We have seen images of the stars and the planets and the constellations. And the galaxies and the nebula and things like that, and we go, my man, man, that is awesome. Well, let's just infinitize that, and and then and then realize that God created that, every bit of it. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. The people, people of God see. Uh, in, in Israel's time, at the, the time of this psalm, in the time of David, they had seen God work. They had seen Him work. They knew of His greatness. And they wanted to declare it. They wanted to tell people about what God had done in saving Him and about His character, which we'll look at more closely in a moment. It's really no different today. God's people, the church, has He not saved us? Do we not look back in history and say, God has saved us? God sent His Son Jesus, did He not die for us? Did He not live for us? Did He not rise again? And we look back at that historical moment and we say, God did something in history, but is He not doing something today? Something that we can sing about today? In any and every circumstance, He's giving us an opportunity. It's really a grace from God to talk about and to express and to give Him universal glory. Making the most of every opportunity, right? I mean, we have a commission that if we're going to make the most of every opportunity, you know, we, we need to take the Great Commission seriously. Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? It, some, some have translated that, as you go, make disciples. So think about that. As you go to work, as you go to school, as you go to the park, as you go to sporting events, as you go to parties, as you go to the store, as you go on vacation, as you go to Africa or East Asia, or South America. As you go, remember that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Who else is going to be his witnesses? Who else is going to declare his glory but his people? No one else is going to do that. Who else is going to share his story and tell of his greatness and his character? Well, we do that Secondly here, not just by our witness, by our words and what we say. Yes, we do that when we worship. When we worship, God receives universal glory as we praise his character. Yes, his salvation. Yes, he has done great things. Yes, 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 witness to that. And then when when we get right down to it and we gather together and we worship and we sing these songs... They're not just warm-ups for the message. Yes, they should stir our hearts. Yes, we should engage in them. We are praising His character. We give God, look what the psalmist talks about. We give God whatever we have of value because He is worth it. He's worth it. We give Him value. This word, ascribe... Who uses that word anymore, anyway? (laughs) Who uses the word ascribe? Some some translations will probably have something a little bit different there. Mine, mine says, hey, that's a good word. Let's use it. Let's what does that mean? Ascribe to the Lord means give. Give to him. Give to the Lord. Uh, Give to the Lord, O families of the people. So, hey, all of you families, all of you family units out there in the world, give to the Lord. What are we to give to him? Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory that's due His name. Give to Him. Recognize that He is the God who is, who is only worth giving everything to. He's a creator of all there is. He's a sustainer, sustainer of life. He provides everything good for us. So the Israelites would literally, as the verse says, verse 8, they would bring an offering they would come into his courts they would literally come and they'd bring an offering so here's here are the kinds of things that they would do so they when they harvested their fields they'd take the first 10% of that harvest that's their that's why we get the word tithe tenth they'd take that tenth and they'd give it to the lord and it would be used for his purposes and for his glory and they when their animals gave birth they would actually give the firstborn to the Lord as a sacrifice, the very first animal to come out of the womb, there were a lot of rules about that you could read about that in uh, Leviticus and numbers Deuteronomy, but they would give their firstborn to God they would they would if they earned an income when they began to trade with with actual money or they would give their income the first ten percent they'd give to the Lord and then and then check it out though numerous times in the year they would just come and they'd give Freely. Beyond that tithe, they would give thanksgiving offerings and praise offerings and then there would be guilt offerings and then there would be sin offerings to atone for the, the mistakes that they made. Now, granted, we don't, we don't have a sin offering, we don't have a guilt offering because Jesus was our guilt offering. But nevertheless, what they were doing was they were recognizing God is worth everything. The least I can do is give the first of everything that I get. To the Lord, I wonder if, like, you know, sometimes when when we get birthday money, should we should we not like, maybe we ought to give a tithe on our birthday money or something? Um, when we get an income, yes, maybe we should give a tithe on on the money that we re- that we earn. I mean, these are not new concepts for you, I know that, but consider how how God is being is recognized in our life, you know, for His worth. You know, is God Worthy of us giving generously to him for, through, through the church and, and through his work? and Is God worthy of us giving generously to support missions and church planting? Is God worthy of us spending uh, an hour or two each week gathering together in worship? Or meeting together in community, say, which is why we do missional communities? Is God worthy of that? Is he worth taking a little bit of our time, carving out not even a tenth of our time, Think about that. Would, t- a tenth of your time? Two, two hours and what how, uh, what would that be? 24 to, to two hours, almost three hours of your day? Carve out three hours of your day. Just give it to God in worship and Bible reading every day. Give him a tenth of your time. I, would, would we do that? Would we be so radical to do something like that? Is God worthy of our time invested in his word, even 15 minutes a day reading the Bible or... Or attempting to memorize portions of it? Is God worth that? Or we are are we too busy glorifying ourselves and our own interests and you know our own purposes that we have 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 put together for our lives? Look what the look what the Israelites did. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The word "worship" there—it literally means to bow down, to bow down. That's why, that's why we sing that in the, the words of that song. We bow down and worship Him now. How great and awesome is He? So usually we go, you know, I, we lift up our hands, and we all lift up our hands, and then we sing the line, "We bow down," and then we kind of put our hands down and go. I'm not gonna I'm not right here, no, gonna, in the middle of this. We usually don't do that, right? But the Israelites, they, they knew how to worship God, um, heart, mind, and soul. Their, their heart was their whole being. <laughs> Everything that they had, so they would prostrate themselves. They would bow down before the, the one who was worthy of their worship. They wouldn't come to God with their chest puffed out. Look what I've done for you, God. <laughs> Here I am. I just want to grace you with my presence today. No, what they would do is they would tremble before him. Tremble. That means to be in labor or to be in anguish. They would fear God. That's what they would do. Because God is gloriously terrible. Can we describe him that way? Could we describe him that way? If you saw God, if you were were Isaiah and you said, I saw God in the temple and then I said, woe is me, you would break down, you would freak out, you would start crying, you would be, this is, uh, this is more than I can possibly bear. You would bow down because you couldn't stand. <laughs> because your knees would be so doggone weak to stand before the glorious and great God of the doggone universe. Oh my, woe is me. There's a children's story that maybe expresses this in a little more of a quaint way, but still nonetheless true, I believe. Remember the story of Aslan? You've got to read the Narnia books to your children and to each other. Please do it. But the children are asked, if Aslan was a tame lion, they heard about this lion, they said, is he a tame lion? I mean, is he safe? And what, what was the response? Of course he's not safe. Of course he's not a tame lion. But he's good. He's the good. <laughs> well, that's who we serve. That's the God that we serve. You know, he is worthy to have every aspect of our lives under his control. He is sovereign over everything. He is worthy of us giving him everything that we have. He's worthy of our humility, our humble worship, and our fearful worship and our fearful praise. He is worthy of our worship. Look what they say. Look what he says next. Welcome. Welcome, God who is coming. Look, God receives universal glory as we anticipate his coming. You also say, uh, in the words of the psalmist, uh, we anticipate his judgment. <laughs> his judgment. Whoa! Let's talk about judgment for a minute. What does that mean? Well, it really, what it really means for the, for the psalmist and for the Israelites who sang the song to God, it, it really meant that they acknowledged God's complete sovereignty over everything. Is there, a, is there an echo in here? I feel like I'm saying that over and over again. But that's what they were getting at. Look what they said. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns! Yes. This wasn't just a passing expression. It was just, wasn't just something to throw into our contemporary songs and to sing every once in a while and talk about, The Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, Hallelujah, let's all join hands and sing Kumbaya. That's not what they were talking about. They, they meant it. It was an expression of a reality that He is the Lord and He reigns. He is the King. He is the ruler. He is sovereign. This entire world belongs to Him. You know, for centuries, God's people have taken comfort in this fact, knowing that no matter what happened in our lives, no matter what happened, God was in control and God was sovereign, and that God would rescue His people, that He would bring salvation. And that he would actually, ultimately judge evil. That, that evil is not going to get away with it for eternity. Maybe for a, for a, for a lifetime. Maybe for, the, as one of the Psalms say, yes, mourning and sorrow will last for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning." There will be a time when he's going to come and he is going to judge the world. And so, what the Israelites did was they welcomed it. They welcomed it. Come, Lord Jesus, we see in the New Testament. They welcomed his coming because they knew God would restore all things to the way they were supposed to be. <laughs> the way they were supposed to be. And see, not only did the Israelites sing that, but look what else. Look who else is singing. Look who else is singing. All creation welcomes His coming. All creation welcomes His judgment. The heavens, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and everything that's in it. Let the field exult, everything in it. The trees rejoice and sing for joy. And another psalmist says, let the trees will clap their hands. Whoa! Well, wait a second. How are they going to do that? Well, this is... <laughs> all creation is responding is welcoming, is anticipating God's coming to make things right again. To make things right again. You know, when, um, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the Sunday before his crucifixion, remember what, remember what the Pharisees said to him? They said, look, make your disciples shut up. That's basically what they said. I know that's, that's a naughty word, but that's what they said. Shut the disciples up. Don't let them sing like that. Don't let them talk like that. They're they're saying things that they shouldn't sing about because only God should be talked about like that. And Jesus said, Hmm, but don't you realize that if they were to shut up, the very stones would cry out in praise because God is here. God is among us, among them, and among you. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8? I won't read the whole, the whole scripture, but he says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is groaning, and we groan with it. Creation is eagerly waiting for God to renew all things and to restore all things. And and this is what the psalmist recognized. All the creation is waiting for Him to come. Waiting for Him to come to judge the world. And Paul went on to say, we hope for what we do not see. We haven't seen it yet, but we hope for it. We wait for it with patience. And yes, with joy as well, right? We welcome, we anticipate, we expect God to come because God always does. Did, did we, well, didn't we learn this from the story of God? God always does what is good and right and perfect. He always does that. And so we wait for Him. We wait for Him. Notice what, notice what the psalmist says about Him. Back in, back in verse 10, he says, He will judge the peoples with equity. God's a fair God. Okay? God's not going to punish anyone unless they deserve it. And who deserves to be punished? Show of hands. Maddie? That's right. Matt? I do. I do. Every one of us. God only gives us what we deserve. And then, the flip side is, well, shoot, we'll get to that, right? What's the flip side? is grace. We get what we don't deserve. God is righteous. He, verse 13, he will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in his faithfulness. Righteousness and faithfulness. God is righteous. God is faithful. Yesterday I was reading in our, in our Bible reading plan, and we were in Romans 3. Romans 3. And, man, I tell you what. Um, I finished January um, on time with my Bible reading, which I, I, I haven't done. I, I always get behind. I just get a couple weeks into the year, and I get behind somewhere. And it always happens. but um, And I did get behind and I, I managed to catch up by yesterday. And I'm so glad I did because I'm reading Romans right now. And it is so rich. And I read Romans 3. And it talks about God being righteous. God being righteous. That he, he, in his righteousness, he has done everything good. You know, how does he show that... Here's how... I'm not going to read the thing, but here's how he, his how God has shows that he's always good and always does what is right and always does what is perfect, that he's a righteous and faithful God. See, only one who is good and right, see, this is, this is kind of what Paul's getting at, only somebody who is good and right and perfect can actually stand before God and be in his presence and have communion with him. Okay? Do, do we not agree? Is that, is that not what the Bible teaches? Yes. Yet, so what did he do about it? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be perfect for us. (laughs) He sent Jesus to live a life that, Jesus always did what was good, he always did what was right, and he always did what was perfect. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he did that in our place, right? But see, the, the other side of God is that, you know, God would not be a good and right and just God if he didn't do something about evil. Evil has to be punished. Wickedness has to be dealt with. So what did Jesus do? He said, well, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the wrath of God. I will have the sins of the world on my shoulders. I will bear those sins on the cross. And so he died in our place. Right? Why? So that we could be God's people. (laughs) So that our sins wouldn't be Counted against us so that we could be declared acceptable and righteous before God and be united with our Creator once again. Yes, and the rest of the story is that then Jesus rose from the dead, did he not? So that we could live with him so that sin and death would no longer have power over us and it would not have the last word in our lives. So when we're wrestling with what is the meaning of life, what is the meaning of life when there's so much evil and so much suffering and so much wrong? Is that all there is? Just try to s- spread a little goodness. You know, buy the world a Coke. You know, wh- do something. Something. Just celebrate a, celebrate a football game. You know, find some meaning in that. And then wake up the next day and whatever happened, happened and, and half the country is going to be in mourning. There's just no purpose anymore. There's just no meaning to it all because my team lost. Is there more to life than that? Yes, absolutely. See, sin and death don't have the last word of our lives because now we are saved. A new song we have to sing about, right? Now we have a reason to witness. Because we have something to witness about, something to share with other people. Now we have a reason to worship because we recognize that God is truly good and right and just and perfect. Because God has proven Himself to be righteous and just and good by allowing His Son to die for us. Taking the punishment. Yes, And now we have a reason to welcome His coming because we hope and we have joy and we have confidence in His coming because Jesus rose from the dead. Without a doubt, we know that our purposes, that our purpose ultimately is to give God universal glory. We know that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yes, every knee will bow, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a fact. Will we join with all of God's people in giving God universal glory? Will we do that? Will we bear witness to the world around us? A world that is dying without a Savior. Will we worship God with the best that we have? Not just just on Sunday mornings, But with our whole lives, will we worship God with the best of ourselves? With everything that we have? And will we welcome His coming? Will we welcome His coming with joyful anticipation? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this word. Lord, um, God, may we never, ever forget your greatness and your glory. And may we never, ever forget that our purpose is to give you that glory. Yes, our lives do have meaning. Our lives have meaning for you and uh Our lives have meaning for eternity. God, help us to be uh, your witnesses. Help us to be worshipers. Help us to joyfully and expectantly welcome your coming. Lord, I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go into our time of response. We're going to hear a song play and and I invite you to sing along um, simple song, uh, one that I'm sure you've sung and heard before. Um, would you stand with me? And if there's any, any way that you need to respond, I want to give you that time. Um, you can come forward. I'd be glad to pray with you. Um, I'd be glad to uh, j- listen to you. And I'm certain we can, we can also um, get together at other times as well. But this is a great opportunity If God is saying something specifically to you, share it. Respond to that this morning. Let's go ahead and sing.